0: This episode of Converge with my guest, Erwin McManus, is sponsored by Go, the Converge Summit. Go is our annual gathering for creatives looking to grow their business. How much are you leaving on the table? For more information, check out convergesummit.com. And special thanks to Biola University's Center for Christianity, Culture, and the Arts for facilitating my conversation with Erwin. For more, check out ccca.biola.edu. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. My guest today is Erwin McManus, and he's been described as an iconoclast, as a pioneer, as someone who cares deeply about culture and art and creativity, and really thrives at the convergence of spirituality and creativity. And I'm thrilled to be in this conversation for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, it's going to be interesting. Selfishly, I'm excited to be in in this dialogue. But number two, I think this could be really informative for those of you who are thinking about ways to integrate these longings in their heart to make things and maybe make something of those things. Uh, His book, he's written many books, uh, Soul Cravings, Chasing Daylight, and several others, but his most recent, which I found incredibly resourceful, is uh, The Artisan's Soul. And uh, I'd encourage you guys to check it out. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge.
1: Thanks for describing me to
0: the words of people actually like me. Well, it's funny that the, the nature of creating is, in, in a sense, a little rebellious, it seems to me. like the, To be calling you an iconoclast. Is to break the norm, is to mix things up a little bit.
1: Yeah, whether we like it or not, creating is always a violation of the status quo. Mm. And so any person who owns their creative essence is going to be, in some sense, live a life of uh, rebellion to something. Mm. Whether it's mediocrity, uh, whether it's tradition, whether it's uh, deeply held beliefs, or whether it's toward um, oppression, slavery. Uh, The creative act is a courageous act because it violates what everyone knows to be true. Uh, to pursue that, which it seems unknowable,
0: mm. and I'm guessing that would be, like you say, potentially offensive to some people. It seems to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, l- l- let's back yeah. up just a little bit. So, give people some context for what got you to this to this expression. So, uh, you have a substantive history and body of work in the Christian Church. You have been a pastor at Mosaic. You're founder at that mm-hmm. of that faith community here in Los Angeles. You have. Ben, I think the first time I ever saw you was you were both presenting and also subbing for somebody at a Willow Creek. You, you, someone someone couldn't right. do it. You stepped in the in the in the gap. And I'm a plan B. <laughs> a plan
1: B. <laughs> well, I, I say that as an affirmation
0: because I remember thinking he he, he must have done this one before because it, you nailed it. It was a sense of like it was a providential moment that, that you were there for just in time as that. And you have been in the public eye for a lot of years. You also had a season where you were less in the public eye and doing some creativity in more of the business context and design and art and film. I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit of your narrative as to what led you to this particular
1: book. I used to write a lot of books, and about six years ago I stopped. The last book I wrote was called Wide Awake, Mm. and ironically, it was um, a book that focused on the process of thinking a dream and turning it into your life, and uh, found this was a really difficult space in the Christian conversation in the faith conversation and because of I think some of the conversation that came out of that I kind of thought I think I'm tapping out I, I don't really want to write another book trying to create an engagement between spirituality and creativity between what it means to have uh, beliefs and what it means to have faith Because I felt like Christianity had a lot of room for belief but very little room for thought mm. uh, a lot of room for conviction but very very little room for imagination and for me it felt suffocating and so I took a, a hard um, right turn and went to the world of film and fashion, design, mm-hmm. art, and just wanted to create beautiful things. And I, I felt that we really have underestimated the power of beauty to translate truth to the world. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our message and our story has become almost like Legos rather than Plato. Uh, so I thought maybe I should just go do something else and find a different way of taking my story to the world, taking the story of Jesus to the world. Mm-hmm. And then six years later, I, I find myself writing The Artist and Soul, um, after spending several years in the world of fashion design and film and, and art, and, uh, and, and really trying to come back to what I, I feel like is really central to the, um, the message of creativity and, and the essence of what it means to be human. Because even when I was working on suits and bags and other kinds of products, I, I think in some ways I've come back to remembering that the most important medium through which God creates is humans. And no matter what you can create in a film or what you can create through uh, a suit or what you can create through a men's bag line or whatever you can create through anything else, uh, the most brilliant work of art is when you take a human life and you help translate it that into its, its most beautiful expression. And, and I think that's why Mosaic is really important to me. That's why this book is really important to me because your life should be your work of art. Your life should be your masterpiece. And I wanted to take the same principles to which we applied to try to create a great work of art and say this is how you create your life into a work of art. One of the core statements of the book is that we are all works of art and we're artists at work. And I think this is a, a dual statement that's really important to understand our essence as human beings that we're works of art that were created by a creative God. But at the same time, we're also artists at work that were created to be creative by this creative God. Both of those are really essential to the human experience.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about that tension of both being a as you say, this kind of created being and a creative being Mm -hmm. both of those sound like identity statements to me or maybe one is maybe the first is more identity and the second is more expression or something like that how how would you could you say more a little bit about the uniqueness of those two roles that we play as humans
1: sure i think everyone would agree we're created you you know the 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 conflict is is there intention in our creation Mm -hmm. and and atheists would obviously say well we're clearly created beings Uh, but really what we're saying when we believe in god and we believe in the god of the scriptures is that God created us with intention, that there's a design intelligence in the process. So when you use this phrase, you're a work of art, what we're actually saying is that there's intention and thought uh, and meaning behind your creation. Mm -hmm. And when I look at, especially Genesis chapter 1, I'm just reminded that God designs with intention and intelligence, with motive, and, and that everything is created out of love for the intention of creating life. And that's, I think, an important part of our identity is realizing that we're not accidental. We're not, um, we're, we're not the, the spontaneous, chaotic result of something that happened mathematically, and, um, but that we're actually created with intention and meaning and thought. And that's why we as humans are sometimes haunted with our search for intention and meaning and thought. And I, I don't think being created in such an arbitrary way would create in us this need for meaning. And we're also this um, work of art that has the capacity to create, which I I think is actually the more difficult thing for us as followers of Christ. I don't know why, but somewhere along the way we were taught that if we thought of ourselves as creatives, we would be violating the sovereignty of God. Hmm. You know, that God's the only one who creates. Well, that would be a problem if... He didn't create us to create. If God was so insecure about the creative process that he didn't give us any capacity to create, to imagine, to dream, then we would be living in rebellion by creating. And I actually think that's the story we've told the world. I think the way the world hears our story is there's a God who creates, and the sin that separates us from God is that we tried to be creative beings. And so you need to let that go. You need to obey, not create. And what I think is interesting is when I look at the scriptures, everything God commands us to do out of obedience is to give us freedom. And that freedom is there so that we can actually be creative beings again. So to me, the, the paradox is that the further we move from God, the less creative we become. And the closer we move to God, the more creative we become. So clearly, this is not a violation of God's sovereignty, but in fact, it is a declaration of God's goodness. And so I love to be reminded every day that I'm both a work of art, that I'm in process of something amazing is being created through my life. But I'm also an artist at work. God holds me accountable for the creative process. And that I'm designed by God to create that which is good and beautiful and true. You tell a great
0: story. At the beginning of writing this book, back when it had a different title, of you with your wife who you mm-hmm. hold in high regard uh, as a creative individual and she self-identified a little differently. And it, as you were telling I'd love it if you could tell the story, number one, but number two, uh, it reminded me of the opening pages of The Little Prince, or Le Petit Prince, where you know it, what's getting exposed is this notion of adults used to remember, when they were children, they were creatives, mm-hmm. uh, and then somehow they unlearned it. And there's this what I'm hearing it, echoing in, in these pages is this call to remember again, mm-hmm. to investigate, to get messy get in the granular with it but could you tell that story a little bit and and chat a little bit about this challenge of the narrative i'm telling myself that i'm not a creative that i Mm -hmm. i'm not an artist Mm -hmm. and and what we can do about it
1: yeah well i mean the book is entitled the artisan soul But usually when i start writing a book it's built around one word and so it was just called artisan Mm -hmm. and when i uh when my wife came and asked me what i was writing about i told her what's called artisan and her immediate response was great a book for people like you but what about the rest of us and and which really made me angry because my wife is so artistic. She's so creative. Uh, her aspiration was to be an actress, to be a comedian. You know, she was a mime. She, She's incredibly... Uh, she, I mean, she can sing. She can draw. There's just really nothing she can't do. But she can't escape the fact that when she was eight years old, she was abandoned by her parents, like eating nothing but turnip and ketchup, that she lived in a foster home from the age of eight to 18, that... Uh, she was abandoned and forgotten, and she never heard the words "I love you" one time in her life. And those um, experiences in her life put in her a narrative that she was nothing; that she'd never amount to anything. Even the foster family she lived with would always tell her, "You're never going to amount to anything; you're going to be just like the rest of your family." And her last name, Lunsford, was a, like a curse. She was just going to be another Lunsford. And here she is, you know, five decades later, the person who lives in a paradox of believing that God has something beautiful to do through her life. And the person who has all the voices who told her life would never amount to anything. So she walked herself to church from the age of nine. And she said to God, I'll do anything you want at the age of 14. She realized education was her way out. So she finished high school, first went in her family. She received scholarships and graduated as the outstanding education student from the university she finished from. She got her master's degree in theology, and she still wonders what she could do and doesn't see yourself as a creative. And I think this is the fundamental problem in the human spirit. It's not that we think too highly of ourselves. I think it's that we don't understand who we've been created to be. And the church has not been helpful. Somehow we've become convinced that if we can just pound into people, you're a sinner. If we can pound the phrase, total depravity into people, if we can pound into them what they're not, that's what created them a desire for God. I had a journalist one time come to Mosaic and say, you don't do a lot of moralizing. You you don't sit around and tell everybody what's wrong with them. And I go, well, we have a heroic narrative. We actually think if we tell everyone what their life could become, they'll realize there's a massive gap between who they are and who they can become, and this will cause them to long for God and cry out to him. And she goes, yeah, you expect a lot of people. You call everyone to heroic life. And she goes, she said, aren't you making it harder for people to accept your belief system? Isn't it harder for people to accept Jesus because you're calling them to too much. I <laughs> said, so again, this is a fundamental problem with religion, is that religion tries to control people through guilt and shame. We're, we're, we've moved into the sin management business, trying to make people less. And we want to see this messiness of calling people to more. We actually think that if we call people to their most noble, heroic, idealistic life, that this is what best awakens their soul to their need for God. And that, and that to me is like the essence of the artist's soul. The moment you understand that you're a creative being, the moment you understand your imagination is the playground of God, the moment you understand that all of us are artists and we are imagined to imagine, created to create, it's going to awaken things in you that are so much bigger than you that you're going to desperately need God. I don't need God because I'm trying to manage my sin. I, I need God because I don't want to live a lesser life than I was created to live.
0: in my own heart, and I've can i been in enough conversations where those limiting conversations that for whatever happens circumstantially in someone's life, choices they made, choices made against them, uh, they've come into a belief Mm -hmm. of what they are and what they aren't. And from that place, it seems like they're interested, many, the courageous ones, are interested in changing. And Mm -hmm. this is just context, but in a sense, change seems to be one of the most talked about subjects, yet one of the least... Actualized subjects, and if change is a form of creativity of sorts, I'm curious if you could just comment a little bit on on how you view change, and then I have a
1: follow up question to that. The the first book I ever wrote, *An Unstoppable Force*, has a chapter called "Change Theology." I became a follower of Christ in college, and I didn't—I was going to go do something else, but they said, "You know, you seem to be really zealous, and you know, it's really on fire, and Mm -hmm. so you need to go to seminary." I didn't even know what a seminary was, and I (laughs) dropped out after my first semester. And then I went back because a professor asked me to come back and help him with a project, but not because I felt like what I was learning was actually valuable. Because I I realized that there is no theology of change. But what's so ironic to me is that like this phrase, uh, Solomon's words, there's nothing new under the sun. I've heard that all over the world. I've heard Christian leaders quote that all over the world where there's nothing new under the sun. And that was the uh, pat on top of the head I received for like the first 10 years of my life. Whenever I'd come in with an idea or come like in with something. condescendingly? Some, oh, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. When the sun. Bless your heart. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. And, and then I went back and read Ecclesiastes, and I realized that we disagree with almost everything Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, but we hold on to that one. <laughs> and the guy began the book by saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Why are we going to choose our worldview from a guy who says there's no meaning in life? Because mm. actually, life is packed with meaning. And, uh, and he's, he's actually telling us what life without God looks like. He also says in it that there's no difference between humans and uh, animals, that we all go to the same place. I don't know a Christian that believes that, but we believe there's nothing new under the sun. But in Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, God says, put away the former things, do not dwell in the past. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. And now it springs up, but will you even be aware of it? So I'm going, okay, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, and we believe that. But God says, I'm doing a new thing. Do we actually believe that? In fact, everywhere God gets involved, something's new—new new song, new you know, new wine, new covenant, uh, new heart, new creation, new spirit, new heaven, new earth. Uh, God's in the uh, new <laughs> and, uh, section of history, and uh, and we want to keep him in the old section of history. And and so for me, it's kind of ironic that the church has become the last bastion of protection for the past, rather than the epicenter of creating the future. And what are we doing? You know, holding to worldviews of people who lived in the 1300s who still were not sure that the world was round Mm. and that the earth revolved around the sun. And we get our anthropology from people who did not understand what it meant to be human. But the scriptures really do understand what it means to be human. So we got to go back, dig deep, and listen to what it says. Uh, I'm convinced there is something new under the sun Mm. and that every person who connects to God is a part of creating the new.
0: I want to stay here for a second because we're having this conversation in the context of a particular moment in history where the digital revolution is no longer the revolution; it's the establishment. Everything's been commoditized by digital. If you're a musician, you don't need a label. If you're a a writer, you don't need a a press anymore. Um, There's a a flattening, as many have talked about, where it seems everyone has access to be able to express themselves to make things. And I'm wondering if, if the era we're living in, and by the way, I haven't forgotten my question about change. I'm going to come back around to that. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if the era we live in, and even what you're saying, uh, I'm reminded of another uh, hero to me. It's a guy named Seth Godin. He wrote The Icarus mm-hmm. Deception. And, you know, Seth, and in The Icarus Deception, he's basically in this moment of history calling people out to fly closer to the sun, mm-hmm. to, to defy this kind of hubris, yeah. and not in an arrogant way, per se, but in a risking-it-might-not-work-out kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I... Given that so many people can do that, I know that there are going to be critics who will say, wait a second. If everyone's an artist or if everyone's a writer, or if every, doesn't that cheapen
1: the act itself? And I know you've heard this question before, but I'm, sure. curi-
0: I'm curious how
1: you respond to that. Yeah, I think I'm kind of bipolar on this because hmm. Icarus did, you know, he paid the price of flying too close to the sun. He just happened to fly higher than everyone else, though. There are people who would say, hey, you know, I'll live with melted wings because uh, I just want to be able to fly higher than anyone else has ever flown before. And, and I think a part of the, the dilemma is that we keep learning l- right lessons and wrong lessons from life. Yeah, and so, yeah, with the dem- democratization of art, everyone becomes a writer, everyone becomes a singer, everyone becomes uh, a voice, everyone's a politician, everyone's a critic. Uh, in, in fact, the, the Internet has probably been the most destructive thing for um, Christianity in 200 years. And be, not because of pornography, but because of the meanness hmm. and, uh, and um, un yeah, likeness yeah. among people. Because now you can destroy everyone. And you can say anything about anyone. I, I can tell you things would, were written about us, about me on websites. And we would call the people and say, hey, we're happy to talk with you and show you that I actually don't believe these things. That you're actually misquoting me and uh, misstating who I am. And they don't care because their fame is by attacking people who have actually accomplished things. So you have this dark side of it, that everyone gets their fame by being against something rather than being for something. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets their fame by destroying rather than creating. And, 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 and no one uh, has to go through the process of earning the right to be heard. And so you know, th- what we've lost is that journey of credibility where people, when they speak, have earned the right to be heard. So we live in a world where bad music is available to everyone, <laughs> and we also live in a world where brilliant artists who would never have a chance That's right. have a chance to have their voices heard to the world. I prefer that world. I prefer a world where, even with everyone who will write every wrong thing about me and every, you know and slander me left and right, I prefer a world where everyone has a voice. Mm-hmm. I, I still think it's a better world. You, you know, Even though you may have to listen to 10,000 terrible artists to find that one voice that may never have an opportunity to have a record deal because they don't have the right look or the right feel, and then suddenly that voice emerges, I love that world. You know, as a writer, I, just, I go, I, I prefer a world where everyone can write and everyone can publish and be, have their own publishing house because if I have something to say, my book will emerge out of that mass of sound because in the end, people are not looking for sounds, they're looking for a voice. They're not looking for echoes, they're looking for a voice. They're, they're, you know, they, they have too much out there. So they're looking for that thing that, that speaks to them at the deepest level. And I have such confidence that beauty always rises to the top.
0: And better than what you're saying, and actually next to the question I want to get back to is, uh, there's a lot of perception that they're around. Even in the scenario you just described. I make my best work I think I've ever made. I put it out there, the metrics, the feedback is, ah, it's not that meaningful, it doesn't land for anybody. I can relate with that in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And as as an artist in soul, I'm just conscious to the listener or the viewer who is is engaging this conversation intimately and saying, What about me? Like I'm scared. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 I am scared i am i am i want to be I want to want to be courageous and, and live out of that. I'm hearing a call in my in my Gut, and I know the soul part of the, your title is significant to you. My friend Todd Henry says cover bands don't change the world. Like you want the authentic self to come out. Talk a little bit about failure and how you've related with failure, and how you would encourage others to join the ranks of of uh, leaning into that. Yeah, when you ask
1: me how do I relate to failure, I, I, my immediate that was, well, failure is life. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. Here go. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm like I, I to ask me how I relate to failure is like how have you stayed alive? <laughs> you know, because I've failed so much more than I've ever had success and um, but I, I But that's not
0: the perception, right? I mean I think that when there's when people are known quantities like yourself, there's this belief that oh no, like everything you touch is gold. It just it's that's just how it happens and, and maybe folks don't get a chance to see Mm-hmm. The, the, the Well, my friends do.
1: <laughs> my family does. and yeah. Yeah, It's funny. With my daughter, Mariah, when she first started working on music, I said, I will help finance everything that's original. But if you do covers, I won't help you at all. And I said, I don't want you to be the best imitation of someone else's talent. I, I, I want you to discover your own voice. And she wrote a song when she was 14 that ended up being the um, lead song for the season finale of Grey's Anatomy. And she would have never had that opportunity or that experience if she didn't risk it writing songs that other people wouldn't listen to. And she used to come over here to the Biola Youth Theater and uh, um, audition, and she never got a part. She would come home crying, going, I know I can sing better than those other girls, but I, I can't get picked. And I didn't want to tell her she didn't have the right look. I, I didn't want to tell her she didn't feel like the, like what they're looking for. Because Mariah's been always real eccentric in her own person. and mm-hmm. and, um, and I said... If you want to sing, you need to go find your audience. So she gave up after several years of trying to get into the youth theater as a singer and started going and singing in nightclubs on Sunset Strip and Melrose and writing music that connected to that audience sitting in that little dingy room where they would bring her in at 14 and have to usher out because she wasn't 21. I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't get the stamp. Bring her in at 16. Yeah, she was like, and um, and I just watched her music grow and develop and you know her story kind of emerge out of that. But there was a lot of tears, and um, and a lot of risk, and out of failure, has really come like a refinement of the person she is. Y- you know, for me, it's like I-, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat down alone by myself, just weeping, going, "Hey, what's the deal?" You know, I, I had a I had a company, and I watched my partner make a decision where we lost a five to six million dollar company in one day. I just put in all the money I had made, and I mean, I had almost a three quarters of a million dollars disappear on a day, about a million dollars. And I had to, I, I couldn't even eat for a month. I lost 20 pounds. I had to fly home to tell my wife that I lost everything. There's nothing more humiliating than having to sit down in front of your wife who was an orphan and a foster child and never had a home of her own or a place of her own and say, I just lost everything. And I can tell you in that moment when she looked at me without any hesitation and said, I thought I was your everything. It, it, it did something inside of me, I can't even explain. I did not know how to respond to that, so I just said oh, I lost my other everything, <laughs> you know. And to me, it's like people want, when they come up, how do I get your life? I go, you know, you don't get my life on the highs if you don't want my life on the lows. If you're not willing to take the level of risk and experience the level of pain, and know the level of failure I've experienced, then I don't know how to help you move to a level of success or influence or voice. Because if there's anything that that good has happened in my life that people see publicly, it, it is built on the rubble of all the times we struggled and failed and suffered and it was sweat and tears and blood that created those things where everybody goes, wow, you have a great life. And you know what's strange? That pain is a part of my great life. It's not the success that makes life so sweet. It's, it's the success in the contrast to the sacrifice and suffering that you've been through. Mm. That's the only thing that gives it any meaning, any wonder, any beauty. Mm. And, you know, so I, I think the tragedy is that studies show us that if you have high confidence in your talent, you're more likely to take fewer risks. If you actually have a lower confidence in your talent but a higher commitment to work hard, you're actually willing to take greater risks. And I, I think the great tragedy in our culture is that we've raised up a generation that we've told you're awesome before they ever risk deeply or profoundly. And I keep telling people, look, you're only going to go as far as your wounds will take you. And you have to like be willing to jeopardize your self-image, your view of yourself by failing, by risking, by falling short, by walking through the rubble in life and going, okay, I wasn't everything I thought I was, but I'm more than I knew I was. And I think that's what God takes us through. It's like he takes us through these trials and these challenges and these moments of huge disruption, not, not just to give us a sense of perspective, but also to see how resilient and powerful we also are. Yeah. The power isn't in how successful you can become. The power is, is how many failures you can overcome. I go, man, you want to know how strong I am? It's not when you see the victory. It's when you see us moving the rocks off of our chest. When we failed, we say we will not give up. I think that to me is like the fun, the joy, the wonder of living life as an adventure, uh, living out. I said to, to create is to live a life of courage. And when people say, yeah, but I'm not a dancer, I'm not a painter, I'm not a writer, what do I do? I go, look, focus on two things. Live a life of love. Because all great art is an expression of love. Mm. So live a life of love and live a courageous life and press into your fears. Whenever you feel terrified, lean in that direction. Don't let shadows become walls because whenever you move toward the darkness, you bring light. Mm. And if you live a life of love and live a life of courage and always keep hope in front of you that tomorrow will be better than today, that you will be better than you are, that you can create out of your imagination a better world and a better reality and that God is the one who's always infusing in you a future and a hope, I think it's going to be okay.
0: Erwin, what a treat. Uh, the Artist and Soul, Erwin, it's an invitation to hope, that's how I read it, yeah. and, and a, a challenge to courage and bravery, and I thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. This was episode 036 of Converge, the business of creativity podcast. Convergepodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, as well as Go, our unconference for creators looking to grow their business. Music today provided by Triplesco Music.com sound as good as you look. Thanks to Danquaze at a creative.co for her audio production. A special thanks to Irwin for being with us. In fact, go get his book, The artist of the Soul, at ErwinMcManus.com. And of course thanks to ccca.biola.edu for making it all possible. Finally, if you haven't shared an episode of Converge, would you? Consider one friend who you think would benefit from my conversations with folks like Seth Godin, Chris Gillibo, and Hanley, and many, many others and invite them to join in. Be caring enough to do that sort of thing is a nod to us that we're doing something right and is a really big deal. So, thanks. That's it for now. I'm James Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.